It's only seven minutes after the called start time, which for LA is not that much time. It's raining, and I'm impressed that we have a full house in the rain after Obama's speech. Um, but thank you all for coming. I'm Julia Meltzer, the director of Clock Shop. Are we good? Yeah. Um, how many people are here for the first time? Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> thank you for coming. So a little orientation. This is our home base. This is Clock Shop, and we share the space with Elysian, which is a restaurant run by my partner, and it's open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So if you haven't been to that, please come. We program things on some of the other days. Um, we also produce and commission projects by artists and writers, and we program events like this. We have another series that we do called Cheap Talk, which we've run for about a decade on and off, which is similar to this in, um, in style. Uh, but we decided to give this program a different name, Counter Inaugural, because we're focusing on the inauguration and post-election issues. So we're presenting this program tonight with the Women's Center for Creative Work. Thank you. And after the election, we, we knew, and the Women's Center knew, that we needed to respond with programming. So we decided to invite people who've been writing and thinking about many of the issues that we all have been confronted with over the past year and a half. It's been a long year and a half. And um, we, we felt that it was important to bring people who have been writing and reflecting on what's been happening in the last year in order for us to listen to them and hear about their work. I think that it's important not just to act, but to listen and reflect right now, especially within a community, which is what we have right here. Um, and that's something that both Clock Shop and the Women's Center do, is we offer audiences a chance to gather together in a smaller group within this very large city that we live in to find commonality, alliance, and support. So we encourage all of you to attend all three of our counter-inaugural programs, uh, tonight being the first one. The second one is on January 24th, another Tuesday, two weeks from now. Um, and we're partnering to produce that with California State Parks and Friends of the LA River to bring Linda Mapes, an environmental reporter from the Seattle Times who covered the Standing Rock protests, and she's also written about issues of river revitalization, focuses on the Elwa River in Washington. And she's gonna be in conversation with Mark Lopez, who is the director of East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. And on January 31st, we'll have historian uh, and writer Robin Kelly in conversation with poet Robin Cost-Lewis, and they'll be responding to MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail. So please put those on your calendar. Um, all of these events have suggested readings, which you can find online. We really strongly suggest that you read things before you come, but you can also read them after. Um, and we also are doing this event Facebook Live. Wow. You've <laughs> <laughs> stepped it up here. Um, and we're also recording it. Pod, it will be on a podcast soon, so if you are so moved, please share with your friends. Um, and then also, please follow us on social media, check out our website. If you're not on our mailing list, then please join that. Um, I want to call out some people in the room who made this event happen tonight. 
my amazing staff who work with me, uh, Savannah Wood, who's right there. Savannah. And Mackenzie. And Sasha Archibald, who's at the door outside. <coughs> and then also my board member, Tracy Gray. Um, and if any of you have questions about Clock Shop, feel free to ask any of those people. Um, and the Women's Center for Creative Work, amazing Sarah Williams, who's right there. Thank you for partnering with us and Skylight Books. Um, these events don't happen without a lot of planning and hard work. We did start thinking about this in late November and thought it's really important for us to offer something in January in response to all the other things happening uh, to give a people, people a chance to gather and reflect. Um, and so, please, if you are able to make an additional donation or if you would like to become a member of the Women's Center, do not hesitate to do that. Um, those little things like membership and donations really truly help us to continue the work that we do. So tonight, it is really my great pleasure to welcome Lori Penny and Neela Banerjee. Sometime over the last year, I discovered Lori Penny's writing and I felt a sense of relief and joy to know that she was out there writing and thinking about what we were all living through at this moment. Um, and when I began to put together this program, she was definitely at the top of my list. And it's always so nice when you email someone and they email right back and say yes. <laughs> and she came all the way from the UK. Um, and Neela, thank you so much for being here to talk with Lori. So I'll just read bios and then bring them up. Lori Penny is an award-winning journalist, essayist, public speaker, writer, activist, an internet nano-celebrity, and author of six books, including Unspeakable Things, Everything Belongs to the Future, and Bitch Doctrine. Lori writes essays, columns, features, and gonzo journalism about politics, social justice, pop culture, feminism, technology, and mental health. When she gets time, she also, write, she also writes creepy political science fiction. And here to talk with Lori tonight is Neela Banerjee. Neela is managing editor for Kaya Press, an independent press dedicated to Asian diasporic literature, and she teaches writing at UCLA and with writing workshops in Los Angeles. Welcome. Thank you for being here. How's everyone doing in here? <laughs> All right. <coughs> um, well, it's it's really wonderful to be here. I was just telling, thanking Julia really for for creating this program because we were talking about how after kind of this last couple of weeks of holidays mm -hmm. and perhaps travel, there's you know we had a lot of us, Julia and I were particularly saying we we're really. Um, organized and pumped up about everything and then kind of stepping away for a couple of weeks or being involved with other things there was that lulling that happens and then coming back in the last week it's been hard to kind of find a, a way to to enter again and, and find that energy and not feel defeated and for me preparing for this talk reading um, Lori's work and, and thinking about things really were Away, so I think you know. Hopefully, for all of you too, this this conversation will be a way to to 
think about things in you. Um, so really excited to be here. Thank you. And uh, thank you very, very much, obviously, everyone for coming on a rainy night, which I'm given to understand is unusual. <laughs> <coughs> Everyone I've been meeting was like, oh, you took the weather with you. And like, There's a song about that. Um, and, and thank you. <coughs> I'm sorry, I've got a bit of a cough. Um, thank you so, so much to Clock Shop and the Women's Centre for Creative Arts, to, for, uh, to, for Creative Work or Creative Arts. I'm sorry. Work. Work at the end. Is it, mm, difference between art and work. <laughs> Thesis topic. Mm. Um, sorry. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for inviting me and for... And, and for flying me all the way out here, which is uh, contributing to me being able to do journalism about a crazy time in, in the United States. And um, so it's, it's a real great honor to be here. And thank you so much for everyone for coming. It's awesome. So um, I asked Lori to, to start us off this evening with reading a little bit from, from one of her essays so we could get her voice in the room. So let's start with thank that. Thank you. Um, I hope you don't mind if I read off my phone. It's a... Uh, I write a lot on my phone, so it's like, anyway, all right. This is from an essay I did called Against Bargaining for the Baffler about a month ago. Do not doubt that this is a war of nerves as much as a war of resources. Popular politics are no longer simply post-truth, they are post-reason. When working class people vote against their own interests, they're usually dismissed as irrational. The Clinton campaign, much like the Remain campaign in Britain, worked on the basis that people would vote with their reason rather than their feelings, forgetting that white men in the West have always been encouraged to believe that it is their feelings that matter more than anyone else's, and a unilateral response to those feelings is justified. That's what Trump voters Brexiteers and their ilk have done and continue to do as the everyday violence against women, queer people, black, brown and Muslim citizens escalates across the Western world. They have interpreted their own feelings as an excuse for bigotry and a license to abuse. They have allowed their feelings to be exploited by venal salesmen with vicious agendas. They have allowed their feelings to be put to work for the very people who cause so much of the mess, as above, so below. Hurt people, hurt people. Just because it's comprehensible doesn't make it okay. Just because your feelings are injured doesn't give you license to injure others in turn. This is the logic of abuse. I have been hurt by life and therefore I am entitled to take my feelings out on other people. I have no doubt that millions of those who voted for Trump have been deeply wounded by life. I have no doubt that those who feel that the hard-won ascendancy of women and people of color to a slightly more equitable social position is a direct identity threat feel those feelings genuinely and profoundly. And that's fine. It's fine to have feelings. It's not fine to place those feelings at the wheel of the ship of government and steer it into an iceberg. Let me break it down for those of you fortunate enough not to have lived in fear of this sort of abuse. The people who propelled Trump to victory and are now celebrating have been stalking and harassing women, people of color, Jews, Muslims, and LGBT citizens online and in the flesh for years. And they have been stalking and harassing us and calling it good fun. When those of us who were targeted spoke out, we were told that the abuse wasn't real, that they didn't really mean it when they leaked our addresses online and sent death threats to our families, that we provoked it, brought it on ourselves, that we should laugh it off and get off the internet, close your computer, be quieter, behave. We tried to raise the alarm. We tried to make it clear that these people were serious, that they meant business, that they were doing harm. 
Now those people are seizing power across the Western world and bringing with them all the tools of psychological warfare that they have used with impunity for so long. We all know people who are not managing, people who we're actively checking in on. In the days since the result, which however the embarrassed commentariat scrambles to recapture the narrative was and remains a profound shock. I have fielded calls from friends, relatives and strangers driven to the point of despair. Then as if things weren't bad enough, Leonard Cohen died. <laughs> I found myself torn between sadness <coughs> and real worry that millions of people around the world who were barely coping as it was were suddenly listening to various positions. Um, <laughs> It is perhaps no surprise that the people who seem to be managing best out of at-risk citizens I know are almost all survivors of some sort of sustained abuse, of domestic violence, child abuse, of the historic abuse enacted by grim and sordid definition on marginalised and minority groups, or all three. Some of the most vulnerable people I know are also the best in a crisis because they kick immediately into survival, survivor mode. One of my most fragile friends has spent the past few days making some of the fiercest political art of her life. Another has put together quick, comprehensible reading lists for strategies of resistance. This doesn't mean that they're grieving any less, nor that those of us still pinned to our beds with panic are poor soldiers in this war to which we find ourselves conscripts. It means that the strategies that will sustain us all in the coming weeks and months are exactly the strategies that have always allowed human beings to survive abuse and intimate terrorism. They are strategies for practical survival that are also emotional armor. Scroll again. Normalization is psychic armor, but so is resistance. In the coming weeks and months and years, we must navigate a course between the exhaustion of perpetual outrage and the numbness of normalization. That means taking care of ourselves and of one another. It means practicing a sort of emotional intelligence that the new power order lacks the capacity to imagine, an emotional intelligence that is all that stands between us and fascism with a cartoon face. It's also called courage. If standing up to bullies was cost-free, we'd have a different world. If enough of us do it anyway, we can still make one. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, thank you. Thank you for, for reading from that, and thank you for writing it. I think it really addressed, you know, that sense you you probably wrote this right after the election. Some of it, yeah. 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 So, it's, you know, how, does it feel any different now? Um, well, I mean, how it feels for me is probably not what's important here because, like, as somebody who is white and what I would call middle class, that actually means a slightly different thing in the UK, I've learned, to what it means in the US. Mm. Um, somebody who's white, comfortably off in some ways, and I have a job, and I'm not actually American, although we have our own dumpster fire <laughs> going on at home. Like, I have feelings about this stuff, but I'm able sometimes to calm myself down and think, oh, maybe it'll be okay. You know, maybe I've just moved into a new house with my partner, that seems to be going well. And like, so yeah, I, f I feel a bit better, but I don't know if that's politically relevant in any way. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't, and I don't think I should be feeling better. Like there's some, I think, yeah, normalization is, is the strategies we put into play to calm ourselves down and enable us to survive. And part of, I mean, this is a long 
long essay, but part of what I was trying to figure out is how much better it's okay to feel. Because this is going to be a long four years, and um, we can't spend it in constant panic, because that's that's no way to live. But on the other hand, like feeling like it's going to be a bit better when actually nothing... In both Britain and America, we're in the phony war period. Um, Reassuring ourselves might not actually be a good thing. Yeah, I I mean, I really appreciated that, because I think there's been a lot of... I think a lot of people in this room have read this essay. There's mm-hmm. there's been a lot of talk about normalization, and there was a couple of lines in here that really, you know, like t- made it like a really clear thing. For example, you said it turns out that you cannot stop fascism by turning off Facebook and doing some deep breathing. No. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is you know, I mean, I, I think the what I loved about the, the essay and your writing is that honesty of you know, I'm doing this work, I'm in this fight, but I'm also trying to survive, right? Right, which is what we're all doing. And I also like an analogy that, like, I feel like maybe not so many of us over here were doing, but you said, you know, I've literally studied, you know, the the rise of the Nazis through school, Mm -hmm. which is not something I think we study over here. And and taught it every single year. (laughs) Because that's the last time that Britain could be sure that we were the good guys. (laughs) That's why we do it. Um, and it, you know, you asked like, what was it like to be an ordinary German in 1933? Mm. And I, I, that was such a chilling question for me. You know, this this idea you said how many tried to normalize the unconscionable, and and I think that that moment of of how do we, how, wh- what do we do in this time, and how how do we approach it was was a really okay. interesting kind of way to start to think about this and how how do we fight it i mean with everything that's going on in england now do you think there is a sense of how you know what are some of your strategies or strategies of your peers of how to keep your oh head my in goodness the i <laughs> mean uh, actually one thing i've noticed that's different in britain and america mm-hmm. so far anyway is that after the after november the 8th it didn't sit, like, there was a certain amount of people on the left writing their hot takes and going, oh, this is all liberals' fault, this is all feminism's right. fault, identity <laughs> politics, meh, 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 meh. <coughs> but um, I, I, I embraced it, that's what it was. <laughs> but um, there wasn't, people have kind of stopped, there wasn't a lot proportionally of leftists tearing each other apart. Like, there has actually been, like, people coming together to build solutions, whereas in Britain we spent, I mean, after June, the Labour Party decided that that was the exact perfect moment to have a massive internal fight and, like, sort of try and topple their own leader. You know, the one moment when you want the opposition party to actually show some kind of backbone, they completely disappeared, and the entire left evolved into, like, fighting over who's better, Jeremy Corbyn or this other guy who was, who's so forgettable that I have actually, like, I, I interviewed this man for two <laughs> hours. No, bless him, he's a very nice man. Owen Smith, I do know his name, but, like, he's... It it was so... That was rude, and I'm sorry. I'm just very upset about the whole thing. Um, he was a very nice man. They're both nice men. It was like, which nice white guy do you want? You know, they both... Ha- and, and, this, and then we had all of the... In, and, and still, we've not quite got it together to even formulate a language of resistance, of opposition. And I think um, I'm kind of heartened by that aspect 
of what's going on in the US. I really am. Um, and I don't know why. Maybe somebody here knows. Do you know why? <laughs> Theory? I, yeah, I don't know. Um, just looking at, you know, kind of stepping back from a moment and, and looking mm. at your career, I mean, it says, <coughs> like, literally on your bio that you were raised by the internet. You've been, <laughs> you know, um, my mother was a modem. <laughs> following, like, you, you know, Maybe you can talk like briefly about how you, you know, how you found your writing voice on the internet, and then. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that, and then I'm gonna talk Thank about. You. Oh my god! One of my, one of my oldest friends is saying the So um, basically, I, I started blogging and writing properly, properly, like as in for publication beyond my friends, in 2000, late 2007 and have sort of just been constantly writing since then. And it's it's actually, I, I started spending more time in the US from 2011 onwards. I came over to report on Occupy Wall Street and sort of fell in love with New York like everybody does, even though New York doesn't love you back no. ever. <laughs> like, you're not the only one to have had this experience. LA will love you. I'm so, are you sure, are you sure? I don't even drive. But um, <laughs> that's okay. There's Uber now. I know, but I, I, LA loves you in this different way. It's different. At least New York is up front that it do <laughs> doesn't need you. It never did. Um, but and uh, I found America is in some ways more responsive to. I found more of a community of peers of young women writers and young queer people writers. Whereas in the US, it's in the UK, journalism is a bit more staid and less experimental. I think it's okay to say that. We have um, our own little media ventures, but like it's that, it's that American dream thing, which is very silly, but um, occasionally comes up with amazing stuff. You know, there's this quality here of people, you know, people who believe that if they just have dreams, they can, then stuff will work out right. And some of that means that some very silly stuff is made, which of course means we wouldn't do it in the UK because we're, <laughs> we're terrified of, of embarrassing ourselves, and you guys aren't, which is amazing. No, which is what no, it's, I think it's wonderful because that's what like the British are so terrified of embarrassing themselves that they never that they're, it's hard to make anything good, particularly right now, and that's one of the reasons I think it's so many people. Although obviously that whole American dream thing is is very vast and complex and deeply problematic in lots of ways, um, but I've always been like both a, a writer first, but also when I say like raised from the internet, I mean like before I was blogging, I was writing massive screeds on Live Journal, which you will remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, your face! <laughs> Live Journal, rest in peace. Um, and uh, sort of grew up in that world rather than coming up through kind of traditional journalism, which I think is much more common now. That uh, you have people coming up through Tumblr and kind of alternative blogs. But um, back then it was, it was just so unusual to have these internet women doing all this stuff. And, and that I think is, it was, somebody said to me the other day, like, do you remember when the internet was good? 
<laughs> like, I feel like there was this time in between, say, 2006 and 2011, maybe, when everybody thought, oh, the internet is bringing communities together and allowing young people and queer people and people of colour and feminists to create movements. And look, there's the Arab Spring. It's amazing. The network. And then you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> look what happened now. It's like that, um, <coughs> yeah, like that, that gif of uh, community where Donald Glover comes in with the pizza. Have you guys <laughs> seen that? So, Yay! And then everything's on fire. <laughs> I turn off Facebook for five minutes and yeah. I mean, I, I, that was, you know, as I was really reading your work, that was one of the things that I think, I mean, you bec because of this experience of you being there at the ground floor and a lot of your reporting has been about that, mm -hmm. what has happened. Like you really had a front seat and have been able to really spend a lot of time analyzing, you know, the trolls and what happened. And I think I, I'm just, you know, really interested in in like how, you know, in you giving us some background about like whether you saw this coming that they were gonna, you know, take over the free world, or if it was oh as shocking to you. You know, I mean, it it seems like you. Literally, I mean, you've been writing about this for as long as as you've been, you know, publishing your work and in, in book form about how it was, you know, like you said, the internet was this place mm -hmm. for communities to come together, and all of a sudden there was this this force of people using the these same forums to to express their hate. And now, I'm just just really fascinated with that, how that, you know, the shift into power and and what you've, mm. you know, what you've what you've been seeing or how you think, <laughs> how did this happen? Oh, no. <laughs> Thank you. So it's a really interesting question at which I could talk for. So, right, I was being trolled by 4chan before it was cool. Like, <laughs> like it's basically what you're saying. Right. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but look, um, there was this time, like, before I started writing about this, which was actually the first time I started talking about it was, I think, late 2010, when... Like, me and a couple of activist women I knew were... We were meant to have a meeting, and then nobody showed up, apart from the three of us. And so we just ended up sitting around having tea in this giant empty meeting room. And then one of us said, like, does this ever happen to you? And it was suddenly like, oh, my God, we can talk about this thing. And I suddenly realized that this thing that had been happening to me was happening to everyone. And it seems weird, because now there is at least awareness, although... That there are limits to awareness, right? We've been, you know, people do like to write stories, usually illustrated by pictures of white women with long hair. Not have anything against, like, I'm, I'm hoping soon to be a white woman with long hair. <coughs> I'm growing it, I'm growing it. But, but you know what I mean, like, there's a certain kind of, like, idealized victimhood. They want to write the story about it, and they want to sort of capitalize on that that story of you know young women being abused and but they don't actually want to do it. there's this fetishization of it but um we were told to not take it seriously and i think everybody under i mean maybe just in case people aren't aware can you give us some examples of, of I, things that have I, I really you. don't like to do that if that's all right but i mean it's, it's like you know i've had bomb threats and death threats but it's like the it's the c more like the constant attrition of awful dudes, and it is mostly dudes just, just trying to attack you in every possible way. And it also comes from like misogynist people on the left, which is the most demoralizing thing. 
and it kind of makes you it makes you want to clamp down against criticism which is bad because uh, as a writer or anything an artist an activist you can't you need to be permeable meaning like no comments yes like or, or just like saying oh well, i'm not going to listen to what anything anybody says about my work that's bad mm. and like if that's not the thing to do if you're a white girl who's trying to do feminism like you it's n- deciding not to listen to anyone is is not very good <laughs> and it and it means that like you have you have to stay open but then you negotiate that boundary anyway look um i think everyone thought that this was a story about like young girls being harassed by kind of men in their bedrooms there's this image of the internet troll as kind of dude in his bedroom in his underpants living with his mother um which is actually like I actually have some very good friends who play computer games all day and live with their parents. <laughs> and I think that's a really, I think that's a real negative stereotype of those people, some of whom are amazing, wonderful people. I don't think it's bad to play video games or not wear trousers or live with your parents. <laughs> like, a majority of people under 35 live with their parents and not all of them are like, eh. anyway. Um, people just thought it was this, like, little boys going after like little girls thing but actually it was much much bigger and this architecture of hate and trolling was developing but um like on this can we talk a bit about fake news because that's a buzzword that's been going on at the moment and um actually i'm sure everyone's been on twitter and seen the latest thing the golden showers thing has i'm not gonna i know there's a kid in the audience at least one so i'm not gonna like talk about it more <laughs> oh, <yeah>. Sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> but still, like she, she might, she might, it might permeate her dreams, <laughs> and that would be that would be so dreadful. Um, but anyway, look, we, a similar thing happened in Britain about a year and a half ago, and it was um, the most wonderful day um, when uh, David Cameron was was rumored to have had to place. I think that, what was it, to have placed an intimate part of his anatomy in the mouth of a dead pig. And this is, uh, did anybody not know about this? <laughs> wow, this is just, um, and, and there's no way of proving that this was the case or not. And this is one of those times when fake news was something that I felt should have been true. <laughs> like, and, and this, this story today, like, there's probably, the source, as far as I could tell in, like, 10 minutes of reading around on my phone, it seems like it's not, there's probably no way to verify it properly. But it feels like it ought to be true. And that's what, that's what's both interesting and like, I feel like, oh wow, the end times. <laughs> um, like kind of politics is, and news is full of things that feel like they ought to be true. And that's what, when people say, oh, Donald Trump, he's, He's, he says what he speaks truth, and you know he says what he speaks from the heart, and um, you know, and they say this thing, same thing about our guys, about Nigel Farage and Ukip. They say, oh, I mean, you know, they they don't they they don't say things that are true. They when they they tell it like it is. They don't tell it like it is. They tell it like it feels. And, um, and that's really, really dangerous because there is this certain, I won't say arrogance, but there is this certain mistake that very, very clever people always make, like a, a stupid mistake that smart people make, which is to assume that if you just say a fact and 
than a sober fact for which there's evidence like that that will beat people telling it how it feels and it never does that this is something you you learn if you're in any kind of media like you you can't just write an academic paper and expect everyone to read it and then adjust their opinion it i've never known that happen um it's and that atmosphere of it's not about there's a brilliant article in the guardian um about six months ago called no i think it was a year ago called putin's hall of mirrors which i really suggest you read if um if you haven't um, should, do you want me to come a bit closer like this? Is that better? Because of the rain. Sorry, I've got a quiet voice anyway. Um, but in that, um, the, auth the writer who had spent a lot of time in Russia explains how the machinery of news and truth works and all the kind of armies of paid trolls they have in Russia. And he explains that the point is not what these trolls are doing. They're not just like pumping out pro-Kremlin propaganda and trying to make it seem as if the truth is this one thing. The point is to make people unsure that there is any such thing as truth. You know, to destroy the whole concept of media, internet as something you can trust in any way, and just to create this ambient sense that, well, that you can't really know what reality is anyway, so you may as well go by how it feels. And I think that's what we're starting to see across the West. Um, it's, uh, it's on bullshit, this essay by Harry Frankfurt, uh, where he talks about the difference between like directly lying and bullshit, which is like a liar has some sense of what the truth is because he or she wants to conceal that truth from you. But the bullshit artist just doesn't care about truth at all. He just says whatever is most expedient. It could be true, probably isn't, just keeps on saying and then you know moves on to the next thing, which is why just fact-checking Trump is never going to work by itself. Anyway, that I should stop ranting because, <coughs> sorry. I think it's, I think it's so, it's so fascinating reading. So you wrote this piece for about being at the Republican National Convention when you went to a party. Yeah, <laughs> Milo land. Milo's, Milo Yiannopoulos party. If people don't know who this person is. He's, he became I was it was fascinating for me to to read this article because I as most people came to know of this person when he was banned from Twitter um because of his like extreme trolling of um an actress Leslie mm -hmm. from Ghostbusters and and so I was like oh this is you know I read all about it that's interesting then when I was reading your article I, I was shocked to find that this moment of him being banned from Twitter was the end result, the, the, the pinnacle of a, of a campaign. He loved it. He loved it so much. I, maybe, you know, I mean, talk a little, I, I was literally shy. I was, I've told this to like 20 people <laughs> since I read it because I think it gives a real sense to, in that article, I think you also had this sense of being of, kind of, of what you were saying, this, this idea of the truth not mattering, mm. you know, that, and I think you put other people in into the same group, like Ann Coulter, and, yeah. you know, I mean, I think it's, it, for me, it was hard to understand that sense of, of you know, what exactly is happening, so maybe, you know, ex talking about your, what you saw at that, in, on that night, or, you know, or just that, kind of explain, like, how, how what does that mean that was, like, a, the best thing for him? Oh my God, like, 
thank you again for saying nice things about the piece. It was um, a scary thing. But um, it's... Yeah, there was this distinction I, I was trying to make in the piece between like true believers and, and bullshit artists or howlers or you know, people who just don't... They don't care what the truth is. They're ideological blank spaces, and that is much more dangerous because what they want is power, attention, fame, money, whatever that looks like, and they, c they will say or do anything to achieve those goals. And Milo doesn't care. He doesn't care if everyone hates him. Um, he, he, he would rather, much rather, that lots of people hate him than he would continue to be just, you know, a rather suspicious tech journalist dude working in London, which is what I, he was when I first met him. Um, a lot of these people are, um, I mean, they're, they're broken in very interesting ways, and I try not to feel like my whole kind of bleeding heart liberal thing, I try not to feel sorry for anyone. It's possible to, well, right, because the whole machinery of culture is still designed to make us feel so sorry for like white guys at the center of power and uh, make you know make you really want to identify with their struggles so i really have to try not to do that particularly because milo still keeps texting me <laughs> and um yeah he to loved your, that to piece. your friend yeah N well no he's not my mate <laughs> but he thinks he is right which is um uh yeah i'm i'm still like I, sh I shouldn't really waste any more of my time on this particular character study. <laughs> but look, um, yeah, I, I've been asked so many questions about Milo this year, and he, lo <laughs> he loved that piece as well. He <laughs> loved it. He was like, oh, yeah, brilliant. You know, everyone's reading it. It's got, you know, now I have intellectual credibility. And like, I, that's not the point. But, um, yeah, I, I've kind of, people now ask me lots of questions about Milo when I've started making stuff up. Like, you know, like Milo once shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. <laughs> 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 Milo can reorganize your wardrobe with his mind. And, and other things. Yeah, it's not. Um, um, I, was there, I mean, you know, like I said, you've been following, you've been writing about this phenomenon of these trolls. You know, were, did it just seem natural as, as like, the, as Trump and... and this troll army, as you talked about, in mm. Russia kind of combined? Was it Was it like, oh, of course, or was there a moment of shock where it no, all... No, it's, it's, it's a natural meeting of people with the same... Um, I think there are a lot of people, and probably a lot of them are dudes, a lot of them are white people, who just wanted to press the big red button to see what would happen. And that is, that is a form of trolling in its essence. It's, it's a deeply nihilistic tendency. It's like, look, why don't we, why don't we jump off this building just to see what's going to happen? You know, everything looks. It's it's the action of people, who, largely of people who really don't see any kind of positive future for themselves anyway. People who are often, you know, deeply sad or or angry, often for at base, you know, quite reasonable reasons, but who then channel that into this destructive. You know, weaponized weaponized insincerity is is what I've, I've called it in the piece. It's but it's you know trolling is it is for the it's for the lulls. It's for jokes. Some people just see Trump as this massive cosmic joke that they've played on the entire world just to upset the people they really hate. And there are people out there who are so divorced from reality and so angry that they would they would elect this guy just to make like social justice warriors cry with no 
no sense of what that would mean for them. I, I mean, I've not, I've really not met anyone who can explain to me what Make America Great Again actually means or what they expect. I th- but I think it's, I think this is the question to keep asking people and I'm sure a lot of people here like know people who are Trump supporters or who have, have family. I, I really want to keep asking people what is it that they expect? Like, what do you actually expect will happen? Give me your forecast for the next five, ten years. What's it going to look like for you, for the country? And people are just at the moment, it, it's just like there's this sense of just having pulled this massive nihilist joke on the world because at least something happened. At least it was, <coughs> at least it's a change. Wow. I don't know. <coughs> like, maybe I'm wrong. I'm just sitting here pontificating from the internet. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> everything comes with that caveat. Um, so did you spend a lot of time? Did you spend a lot of time covering the election from here? Were you? I covered both conventions, and um, I, I've, I've been back and forth last year. I went to a Trump rally and various other things back in, in 2015, but um, I, don't, I haven't been covering it in the way that you'd be like embedded with a campaign. Right. I've, I've, mainly been, I've actually mainly been sitting in my bedroom, not wearing trousers, <laughs> <laughs> reading the internet. <laughs> and, um, uh, uh, well, so what, what was it? Well, so beyond your experience at this party, I mean... You know, this gathering has kind of been themed about misogyny I mean, at, at the Republican National Convention. I mean, what kind of, what was, what did it feel like in terms of misogyny? Oh, I mean, <laughs> what's interesting about it and what's going to be interesting in the next year is how they tried to phrase, they tried to phrase the innate misogyny of their members um, and the, the, the sense of toxic masculinity which has always been there in conservative politics, not just like far-right politics, but conservative politics per se, but has this new, like, hyper-gendered feeling about it in this, in, in Trump land, in, um, as it is with, and that's kind of a unifying feature of, of most fascist regimes and demagogic regimes, is this, you know, weaponized toxic masculinity. Um, and you see this across Europe as well, at the German AfD, who have a real chance of getting in at the next elections, are, you know, really, really strong on, you know, women's traditional place in the home, no abortion rights, you know, restoring the German family, and um, and that's a huge part of their platform, second only to, you know, we hate all the immigrants. And, and that's how we're going to protect women, by the way. You know, we want to get rid of immigrants in order to stop them raping white women who we then want to send back to the home and have, like, no rights over their own body. It's, it's this weird, like, sense of... It's this parochial neo-chauvinism. Like, they know what women should be and should look like. It's, um, it's deeply worrying, and that tendency is, um, is, is in its own way in the UK as well. Um, Somebody said to a, a friend who is a comedian and is allowed to say terrible things, um, <laughs> told me like after Theresa May was well, she wasn't elected. She like let's just be clear about that. She just was the last person standing in the room after everyone else had like <laughs> yeah like, kind of so shuffled off the pitch. But yeah, this 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 person I know said to me like, it, isn't it a bit like so? Yeah, women woman prime minister, you know having you know a woman prime minister and all this Brexit nonsense is a bit like 
being congratulated on how much weight you've lost and then told it's because you have cancer, which is awful. But the more I think about it, the more I'm like, well, I mean, it's great that we have a woman prime minister, I guess. But like, does it have to be this one? It would be really nice in Britain to have a woman prime minister who wasn't like a raging Tory, like, <laughs> reformer. Like, I don't know if you, you're allowed to have both or if you want. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, but so we can talk about what's happening in the UK because it is, it's, I don't think it's quite, a lot of people talk about Brexit and Trump in the same bracket. Mm. And I, it's not the same. I, I think it's, and I think it's kind of offensive to what people are going through here in some ways to say, oh, this is, this is your version of Brexit. I think the UK is in, despite the fact that it feels very horrible, a very slightly better position. Like the level of stuff that can go wrong is on a slower burn. Mm -hmm. And the people we have in power, um, actually, because of this, this uh, Theresa May is actually an ideologue. It's really interesting. She actually has things that she believes in and an agenda. It's not an agenda that I agree with in any way, but she's a very interesting person to have in charge because she is a kind of small C conservative Tory. And it's going to be, and, uh, but I mean, deeply right wing deeply anti-immigration when she was Home Secretary, but it's going to be interesting to see what that will look like, because everybody thought it would be Boris Johnson, who is um, the kind of primary example, at least in, in the UK, of the politician who is that, the bullshit artist, the, the howling ideological and ethical void who, you know, he's been Mayor of London for eight years, um, he's the guy who will say anything in order to make his way to the top. And everybody was like, he's going to be prime minister. And then we had a kind of interesting two weeks. Of, was anybody like reading British Twitter at that point? I've heard that it was actually quite an entertaining break from American politics <laughs> to like be following stuff that was going on in those weird days. It was like a kind of, yeah, house of cards type, everyone backstabbing each other and <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm just ranting now. Just, <laughs> just, just, you can just say stop. You don't have to <laughs> ask a question. <laughs> um, well, I, I definitely wanted to talk about, about Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. um, you wrote, you, in, in a piece that you wrote about you know, being with her, you, you said some stuff that I really agreed with. You said, a general election is about nothing more or less than choosing your enemy. Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton is the sort of enemy I've been dreaming of for over 10 years of political work. She's the kind of enemy you can respect. Yeah. <coughs> so yeah, I love yeah, that. I, I thought that thank was great. You. Tell me a little like bit I about was, that. I was really looking... Okay, so look. My plan for the next couple of years was to... I was actually going to go and write a novel that I'd started. And I was... I wanted to... You know, I could see myself, like, occasionally, you know, writing thoughtful pieces about whether or not Hillary Clinton's attitude to welfare reform was really feminist enough. <laughs> and, you know, what, what does it mean to say this specific thing about abortion rights? And, you know, and, and that was... That, that would have been really cool for me. Like, that was the kind of... You know, let's have an energetic dialogue between liberal feminism and radical feminism, not between, like, any feminism and and this guy <laughs> like it's that was the, that was I was really looking forward to that <laughs> fight like I'm I've been a feminist activist for some years like I love having fights with other feminists that's like what I don't love it but like that's kind of what we do for fun when we're not fighting everyone else like 
and occasionally... Look, there must be some of you who are in the feminist movement, right? And occasion, every so often, somebody will write an article saying, we should just learn how to love each other like women are supposed to do, and it'll be fluffy, and we can go to the red tent, and, you know, and, it's, and, you know, we, and if we just all find our common ground, I was like... Lol, no, that's never going to happen. You know, did, does anybody remember the 80s? I've heard, like, people, like, I know still, like, are traumatized from the feminist wars of the 80s. It's, but, yeah, that I would have loved to have that. You know, I would have loved four years of internecine feminist squabbles. But, um, and Donald Trump has really messed up my life plans, which, <laughs> is, which is not the worst thing he has done, but it does make it personal. Um, I completely forgot where I was going. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think it was Sorry. just just <laughs> thinking. I know it's good to to think back. But yeah, the, the choosing I guess, your you enemy. Know, yeah. yeah, like you know, I mean, or just how you were observing. I mean, I think it's happening now. I'd be interested in your take on like <laughs> pantsuit nation. Oh my god! Like, so what was interesting <laughs> is, so I didn't. I only spent about total about two months in the U.S. last year, but. I went around quite a lot of Europe, and, and the interesting thing was the, the kind of Bernie versus Hillary fight was happening everywhere in Europe and everywhere in the, in the UK, which is still part of Europe, <laughs> um, just for now. Um, and, you know, between people who, w who were never, who didn't technically have a stake in the election, people who didn't have a vote, but um, people who believed that this kind of, you know, harder, harder left, Dude and Hillary Clinton face of you know equivocating liberal feminism that this was somehow a definitive fight and wherever you were on the left you had to symbolically pick a side and um, I found that interesting in itself the way that people and it's it's just it's the fight that you just don't want to have on the left ever like I've spent so long trying to persuade people you can have socialism and feminism but it seems like we were being asked to choose. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I got, it's so innovating to watch people have this kind of infantile attitude to representative democracy. <laughs> the idea that you'll ever get somebody who, who will not compromise when the whole idea of being in a representative position is about making hard choices and compromises, which is why, like, it takes a certain kind of person to do it. And, um... I just think it's naive to think you're ever going to do anything but choose the enemy you most want. And um, I don't know, that's more of a, that's an anarcho thing to say, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's what I feel. Um, and I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry if I've offended anybody in the room who was like deeply team Hillary, um, because I can see like reasons for, I can definitely see reasons for that. I have friends who are on both sides and I respect them both. Um, I kind of, does anybody here watch a show called Steven Universe? Yay! One person, <laughs> and like <laughs> it's amazing. Anyway, like they they has, they had this thing where, like, two gem aliens can dance and fuse together into a bigger, amazing, more powerful gem with the traits of both. And I kind of feel like if Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton had done that, they would have formed Elizabeth Warren, and <laughs> and, and and everything would be okay. Like, is she not the gem fusion of Bernie and Hillary? Like, like I don't know. <laughs> yeah, gi a giant woman. It's, yeah, exactly. With the powers of both, but no, it's not to be. Um, can I t what is our time? I want to make sure we leave enough time to open that up. Five more minutes? Okay, yeah, sure. Perfect. Um, 
I mean, you know, just kind of going back to the theme of why we're all together and to, you know, be thinking about these things. I mean, this is kind of a big general question, but, you know, in all of this, you know, I mean, I think it's clear through your writing and stuff, but what are, you know, I mean, in, in these moments, like you just said, I think that shift is really important before, you know, I mean, there's so, I'm sure there's so many people in this room, so, so, man, so much of my community had bought their tickets to DC and mm -hmm. were prepared to embrace this, this, embrace Hillary for, for whatever it was, mm -hmm. whether you were, you had bought the pantsuit or you were ready for the fight, you know, there was, there was a sense of it, um, you know, as, as you'd been saying, like a, a radical feminist who's been working on this, like, does, does it change y your work in, in the Trump years? Like, is, the, is there a shift or does it, is it just kind of keeping your head down? Like, how do we, what, what are our, your strategies personally to combat kind of this intense wave of sexism and misogyny in this, in oh 2017? God. Like, um, so, like, what gives me hope right now, and this is maybe not my strategy, because my strategy at the moment is, like, hide under the bed and write <laughs> some articles based on what I read on Twitter and never, <laughs> never leave the house. But that's not entirely true, but it's mostly true. Um, I've seen a lot of people kind of dispense with... People who've been kind of on the Hillary bus for a while say, all right, well, at least we can stop with the equivocating now. And at least we can, you know, we can pick what's good from the Hillary campaign, but now we can take it bigger, because why not? Because if you're going to have a difficult fight anyway, which it was always going to be, then we can at least stop pandering to these people, to, like, to our kind of moderate center-right political enemies. And I think there is this sense now of more of a more battle lines being drawn, which I'm personally okay with right now. And uh, feel free to, you know, everyone has their own opinion on this. There are a lot of people out there saying we should be building bridges and we should be, you know, creating a radical center ground. But actually at the moment, personally, I don't want to reach out to people who are trolling and harassing me and people I know. And I don't want to like open my heart and build common cause with people who for whatever reason have voted for a fascist racist sexist monster um i don't think that that's something that should be instantly rewarded by you know fellow feeling in until like until these people because i don't see these people you know opening their hearts to everyone else and saying oh well now we've won you know we can create you know, maybe we can find some common ground. Actually, if anything, they seem to be angrier than ever and, you know, emboldened in that rage. Um, they, they talk about being poor losers, but, but they seem they're very, very poor winners. And I don't, again, like, I don't know what their aim, game, aim plan, their end game is. I'm sorry, it's, it's 4.30 in the morning, my time. <laughs> um, and not the people who are actually in charge in the administration because they're kind of, they're going to be fine. I don't think they're not the, they are not the angry people yelling on the internet. It's those people I'm talking about. And I don't know what those, pe what's going to make those people happy. What's going to stop them being so angry. And I have a suspicion that nothing is, um, not even the sense of having won. Um, and I feel like I should bring that to some sort of uplifting conclusion. <laughs> um, let me think. Um, okay, hope, politics of hope. No, seriously, actually, I, 
hope is sometimes naive, but I think the division right now is between people who believe in some kind of future and people who don't. And that division is not just on the between the left and the right. You find your apocalyptic doomsayers on the left as well. You know, people who I have heard people on the left say, well, you know, Trump is in and Brexit is in, but at least it means society will fall down quicker and uh, we can have the revolution. That makes me so much angrier, really, actually, than anything Steve Bannon says, because I feel like these people are meant to be on my side. Like, I, I hate that so much. Um, it, yeah, it's between people who believe that there can be a livable future and people and a long view of humanity and people who don't and who just want to see it all burned down. And that is why, like, I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't be here for the Octavia Butler uh, sessions because she's one of my favourite writers ever, ever. And um, I kind of, I read a lot of science fiction and um, whilst it's, and I write a bit of science fiction too, I wrote a tiny science fiction book that they've got over there. Um, that's not a plug, by the way. I think it's <laughs> like it, it's a grab bag of weird thought experiments that I should have spent longer on, but was instead had a full time job. But anyway, um, I think it's important to have some kind of future imaginary, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be a positive one. You know, don't have you don't have to have a utopia. You just in your mind, you just have to have a sense of a possibility for an, an extended lifespan of the human race, an extended lifespan of you and your community, whatever that is. Um, and it, that doesn't have to be a naive thing. Um, that's what I th that, that's much more complicated than just say, hey, keep hope alive. But I, yeah, science fictional imaginary is a pretentious but like I guess appropriate place to end on if anybody has any questions yeah. that aren't going to make me sound like I've been up all night yeah let's open it up to questions thank you yeah. thank you Questions about um, how journalists are going to respond to massive mistrust of media that has, in some ways, created this situation. And um, I hope this will answer your question. But there's something that I've been thinking about for a while, which is I feel is worth saying. Um, when people talk about journalism and media, fake news, whatever, it's really, really important to understand that journalism is also an industry. I mean, everybody knows that, but people tend to forget it, and people, um, people tend not to take any kind of materialist view of it, whereas you know, there is an economic basis for the creation of culture here, which is a wanky way of saying, look, People aren't creating clickbait because they really like to create clickbait, or they, and they aren't push, pumping out stories about you know golden showers because they think that that's true and people need to know it. People are doing that because we are in a collapsing industry which is laying off people left, right, and centre, um, and you know the, the hysteria. And one of the reasons Trump 
He never had to make a press release because he's such good copy. He is living good copy. And um, and for for anyone for both political sides, and this is I th it's one of the reasons this happened, not the only reason, of course. Um, he's he knows how to run the press. He knows how to be good press, um, and I think he will continue to do so. Um, it's one thing. I mean, I heard I heard from you yesterday. My source on this is my friend I'm staying with telling it to me this morning, but I want it to be true, so I'm going to say it as if it is, because that's how news is done these days. <laughs> okay, um, and what, but what I heard, which I hope is true, is that uh, subscriptions to newspapers and uh, political magazines have actually reversed the trend in, since the election, and have you know people have been subscribing to them more and more. Um, yeah, I, I, I really hope so. Again, the subscription model is not is a, it's a stopgap, it's triage, while we all try and work out how we're going to fund ourselves in, um, in the next few years. Because, I mean, for me, I'm trying to decide how to fund myself to do the journalism that I feel actually matters, rather than pumping out stories about shoes and you know why you know what women should be doing with their body hair this year which is what i've actually got a little file where i've saved every request i've had to write about body hair and you know i was like but i mean I'm, it is important in its own way i'm not dissing it it's an intimate decision that people make and yeah but like it's like that to me is kind of this this news economy of faux feminism and misogyny for example that doesn't get to the real issues and the question is I know it's not what you were asking in terms of media distrust but I think it is in the meantime supporting newspapers and supporting things like the Freedom of the Press Foundation is really really important but in future it's going to be um, the question of how media are going to respond is kind of primarily an economic question actually, I reckon, because you can have all the high-volted ideas you want in the world, but people have to get paid, at least until we have the revolution. <laughs> Hello. Go ahead. Well, like, I'm so the question was, what are the similarities and differences between post-Brexit and post-Trump, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, thanks. It's kind of like I, I said earlier, again, just in my opinion, but I think the movements that are coalescing here are, you've kind of got the jump on, on Britain. British people are still incredibly kind of, there's this sort of shell shock, and look, has anybody got something in their house that says keep calm and carry on on it? Like that whole thing. I mean, you know what I mean? That kind of, it was actually, that wartime poster was never actually put out. Somebody just found it in an old box and decided it would be like, it symbolizes what the British people do. And this whole idea of the blitz spirit and you know people just kind of stiff up a lip and carry on. And there is that sort of quite deferential aspect to the national character, which what, people don't realize is that's actually one of our very worst traits <laughs> as a nation, right? Um, in some ways, 
And, um, and I think there is this sort of sense of, there's a sense of deference and a sense of kind of just paralysis and all right, now we're just gonna go after each other, which I don't, I think normalization has not taken hold here in the same way as it kind of has in the UK. Although on the other hand, we do technically have a conservative in power rather than whatever Donald <coughs> Trump is. Um, I, d I do think it's quite different, although some of the emotions behind it are the same, and you see the same thing with um, people who were technically on the winning side just getting angrier and angrier as they realise, you know, they're realising, I mean, in the UK, we are, somebody said to me the other day that it's like, you know, Marine Le Pen, uh, the French fascist leader, has suddenly announced that, oh, actually, I don't think we want to take France out of the EU. That was her platform before, but everyone's looking at Britain and going, no. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, our economy is buggered right now. It's, really, it's going to be really, really bad. And, um, and we're kind of like that kid in, like, in the playground who everybody's like, daring them to do something stupid like go on go on jump off the roof and we'll all jump off the roof after you and then you jump off the roof and like you break everything and everyone's like oh no lol look at you <laughs> um that is kind of where britain is at the moment and um and i hate to say it but um but things have actively been getting worse in the uk even since june uh, we have a massive crisis in the health service right now a massive crisis in social care it's been a very very bad winter in terms of looking just the infrastructure of looking after sick and elderly people and um it's people are, people are really angry about that and afraid and upset about that but they're turning that anger again back on immigrants women social justice warriors and they there doesn't seem because it turns out that just telling people in factual terms that they're wrong isn't enough. And I think that if, if there's any object lesson from Britain to the US, it's that. Like, it's really hard to get people to change their feelings. Um, it, it, you can redirect people's feelings. And, um, you know, people like Trump are really, really good at that. Maybe we should be better. Yes. Um, so, so just kind of looking at the similarities and differences again, but uh, between Brexit and the Trump election, but kind of focusing in how much of it was kind of related to immigrants and people of color in either place. Thanks. Okay, caveat here that I'm kind of I'm like the liberal elite that everyone's yelling at in so many ways. Um, well, I don't think I'm liberal, but you know, maybe I'm. A, I, I like I like nice things. I like to have you know, coffee sometimes, you know, apparently that's, anyway. Um, I think this is one area, and I, I, I'm not an expert here, but I think this is one area where it's actually quite dangerous to compare the UK and the US directly, because whilst Britain and America are both deeply racist countries, they're racist, at least in my experience as a white person, 
in very different ways. Like racism is really baked into class culture here in the way it's just not in the UK in the same way because we did all of our slave making and conquest back when we had an empire very, very far away where people who were living in the UK at that time didn't couldn't see it and couldn't feel it every day. And that does affect the history and makeup of, and again, this is just, you know, this is just my thoughts. This is not like, I haven't like studied race theory in the UK. But one thing that is true, and I think is was true in the US as well, is that the people who voted for Brexit proportionally lived in the places in the UK where there were least visible immigrants and minorities. You know, it was the further away you were from places where there were immigrant communities, the more likely you actually were to vote for these kind of mythical, dangerous others to leave. Um, it's whereas, you know, London voted heavily for Remain and we are one of the most diverse cities in the world. Um, same in, you know, in, in other cities where where it's very diverse, but there are huge areas of the UK where the population is something like 98% white, and those were the places that voted Brexit. And um, that seems to be a similarity in, in the US. So, I mean, I guess the similarity is this sort of, just a break, but again, a break between reality and what people feel to be true. In places like, I was in Wakefield recently doing question time, and in, in places like Wakefield, there is no way to logically say that immigrants have taken all the jobs because there are no immigrants there. You know, the reason the libraries are closing, the reason the hospitals are being, they, they've just lost their local hospital because of government cuts. That's not because of immigrants. There aren't immigrants in Wakefield. There are like two people and everyone knows them probably. <laughs> like, and, but that's, it's about what people feel again, not, not, not facts. And if you try and, I did try and talk to people about that and they got very, very, very angry with me and I was really glad that I was like behind a bench. There's a certain amount of protection you have when you're sitting up here like this. I don't know. Other questions? Thank you. Um, so what paths forward for the kind of, maybe, the for the Rebel Alliance? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we work with Tatooine? Right, you know. Um, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I'm for, I'm, I'm really, really tired of leftist purism. purism. Like, I, I, I really, really don't like it. Um, and there's a lot of it in Britain. Not and again, not, it's not even in the UK. We've got this wonderful, you know, we we didn't have the prohibitions against like communist parties that you guys had over the last hundred years. So we've got this wonderful kind of collection of you know th we've got the, both the communist party and the communist party of Great Britain. I did I worked for the communist party's newspaper for a while when I was getting getting my chops. So and. Um, you know, I, I kind of know this from the inside, and then we have various anarchist groups, very the Socialist Party and the Socialist Workers Party, and it's all about this kind of giant, 
it's sort of half real politics, half live action role playing. <laughs> um, it really is. Um, and, I, and, I, and I like live action role playing. Like I have done live action role playing. Um, no, that's not dis disparaging at all. But um, like I, there are people who like who the people they hate in order of in ascending order of hatred are you know the Conservative Party, liberals. And the Socialist Party, if they're the Socialist Workers Party, or the Socialist Workers Party, if they're the Socialist Party, it's like it's like Monty Python. It is like that's it's such a it's it's such a good satire on what I mean. It was drawn directly from the British left at the time, and it's still like that. And you see elements of that on the American right and the American left too, which is just this idea that the most important thing is to have the purest politics and never to work with anyone who believes something slightly different about welfare. And, you know, I feel like those are fights that I can have a little bit down the road. Um, and I'm personally, I'm prepared to work with people from a lot of different parts of the left. And I think that's the mature thing to do right now um, because I, I don't have a religious approach to leftist thought and organizing. But I understand that a lot of people feel it feel differently right now. But I don't think like recreational abuse of liberals is what's called for right now. You know, some of my best friends are liberals and um, and I think there's room for them too. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, you, I, you maybe don't agree with me, but I, I hope it could be like that, maybe. On the back. Goodness. So, what what kind of differences are you seeing between young feminists and feminists from other generations um, here and in the UK? And is there a way to bridge that? All right. Thank you. I would say, like, I'm not that young. Like, I'm I'm 30. I'm not like tiny. Like, it's a <laughs> sorry. Like, it's a <laughs> anyway. Like. Um, <laughs> it's look I think the divisions between old and young old and young feminists and generations are like people the media loves to hype it up but, and there is an aspect of kind of you know young choppy feminists um, particularly people who are fortunate enough to have like to have grown up with an active internet feminist movement which I didn't you know back in my day you know, there was no Tumblr and there was no Pinterest. And, you know, I had one feminist friend and I met her because she was had a book in her bag on an orchestra trip. <laughs> you know, that back in my day, we all lived in a shoebox in the M6. And, uh, <laughs> sorry, um, yeah. But I think it's, there's a certain aspect of, as there always is, and it's fine, of people thinking that, you know, the older generation doesn't know what they're doing with regards to... Um, certain aspects of political organizing. And I think that's, you're never gonna stop that happening. Um, in the UK, there is, there is a divide and it's a really toxic and unhelpful divide between people who are 
trans-exclusionary and more against sex work and, you know, view sex work and sex workers as, like, a threat to feminism and people who don't. And that does tend to be a generational divide, not exclusively. And that's something that, you know, it that takes away a lot of energy from the feminist movement. In the US, that happens, but not as much. And I feel like, and, and also in terms, generational terms in the UK, like, I wouldn't even say like m my generation, Gen Y or whatever, has like, is like woke enough to intersectional feminism yet. It's like the end of Generation Y and then the next guys who are really kind of starting to get with the program, partly because demographics are changing. Um, I, but previously, I got all my anti-racist politics and particularly my anti-racist feminist politics from America. And I think that's a, American feminism is really thought leading in that way. And um, I, but it's very interesting now seeing like a, a younger generation of black and uh, minority ethnic women in the UK and allies kind of, you know, developing that language. Whereas you're, I feel like in the UK, you're much more likely to hear older feminists talk about, you know, intersectionality as some kind of newfangled thing that the kids are doing. And, you know, black feminism is, you know, not a real, it's just an internet thing. Like, I don't think that's not an argument I've heard over here, if that makes sense. And again, it's just my experience, but. Okay, okay. so one more question. Yes. Thanks. So Thank you. you published a story about self-care being like, is self-care a neoliberal plot, basically? <laughs> and the answer is not really. Okay. <laughs> Pricey. Um, yeah. How is that? How is that? Look, yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it's even more important now that thing because there is a there is a tendency to kind of there's a tendency among people, particularly on the left or people you know active in any way, to to not take care of themselves and not believe that their individual lives are important because if you have a sense that the world is going to hell then of course your individual life doesn't feel important and I've seen so many people just burn themselves out and you know take too many substances and never get enough sleep and whatever it is and I think it's even more important now to do the basic stuff like I had two days off over Christmas I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> I only looked at the internet a little bit, and once I just I sat down for a whole half hour and didn't do anything. I didn't even read an improving book. <laughs> I'm really pleased, and I feel that you're not like giving me enough validation. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. But it was a, it was a massive effort for me. Okay. <laughs> like um. Anyway, look. Yeah, I think it's it's really important um to do that kind of thing, and I think it's um. There are people who are more articulate than me about this kind of thing right now. I'm I'm really sorry. I'm kind of like d dissolving into a into a mess of words, and um, I'm, I'm, I apologise to everyone who organised this because I'm clearly about to start speaking in pure signifiers. But yeah, <laughs> look, just I said it all in the article, okay? Like, <laughs> and, and 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 I still mean it, and now I mean it more, and that's what you asked. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. 
Thank you.